$1.9 trillion COVID relief bill passing the Senate, clearing a major hurdle to get stimulus aid directly to struggling Americans. This nation has suffered too much for much too long. Welcome back to the Right House podcast with me, Ali Razamanji, a journalist and now, dare I say, podcaster, and Matt Shaw, editor at The Locust News. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Hey, not too bad. Yourself? I'm good, thanks, Matt. But this week has seen huge strides in Congress with progress on landmark bills flying left, right and centre. So let's get straight into it and kickstart. First up, it's Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan, which went through the Senate with a 50-49 vote. Due to amendments being made in the bill, it will head back to the House, hopefully for one final time before heading to the Oval Office for final approval. But Matt, what makes this bill so crucial? Sure. So uh, it passed on Saturday and it's important that it did pass as soon as possible. Uh, it includes, among counts other things, it has you know aid money to get the vaccines out there, uh, funding for state and local aid, one-time payments of $1,400 and jobless aid, uh, kind of unemployment benefits of $300 a week now through the summer as well. Um, so it's crucial money for everybody involved so that America can... Um, you know, get back on track and help people out and hopefully return to something like normal by the end of the year or the start of next year. Uh, notably, it doesn't have the federal minimum wage raise to $15 by 2025. That was a big point of contention. It split a couple moderate Democrats off. But yeah, after nearly 12 hours in discussions, uh, like a marathon voting session, seven Democrats actually, and one independent senator all joined or joined all of the Republican senators, rather, in striking it down. Yeah, it was, it's been a huge point of contention. And I think it's something that a lot of, obviously, Democratic supporters and Democrats in the House wanted to pass. I mean, Pelosi, as we've said before, she, even though she saw it unlikely to pass in, that, in the Senate, at least that amendment, she wanted to show that they were backing it in the House. And I think it's, it's something that's very popular, but of course, it's not going to get support from, support from Republicans, and it's hardly going to even get support from Democrats. And it's a sad fact. So I think it's something that I think is high on the Biden agenda, but I suppose it's something that's willing to be sacrificed. I heard earlier in the week that Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, was going to force a vote on it. Uh, but I guess during this voterama, it was all just dropped and the bill passed on Saturday early morning. But I know you wanted to talk about Joe Manchin from West Virginia. What, what's so significant about Joe there? He pushed unemployment benefits down to $300 a week. They were intended to increase to $400 a week, um, but he said no. And yeah, he, that's a victory for him. He's managed to get them down. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't save that much money at all out of a nearly $2 trillion bill. It's such a small saving, so I don't really understand his strategy there. But it's a good kind of point to discuss how much power Manchin has at the moment. Him and another moderate Democrat, Kirsten Cinema. Um, they're both kind of flexing a lot of power because they know that to get things through the Senate, Joe Biden needs all Democrats, uh, Democratic senators to vote on something in their favor. So when they raise, you know, a point that they're not happy with, essentially everybody's having to bend over backwards just to please them. Um, otherwise, it won't go through. So, yeah, I mean, and another reason the $15 minimum wage didn't go through, Joe Manchin is one of the more vocal people opposed to it because he can basically afford to. He can kind of get away with whatever he wants at the moment. I think a lot of people look at this majority in the, in the Senate now and think, well, the Democrats can pass whatever they want. But they can't because on most things, they're still you know, stuck by the filibuster, which Joe Manchin also doesn't want to abolish. 
And then they're also stuck with him raising things that he's not happy with. And then they have to get him back on board. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think? This reminds me a lot of the Obama terms in some ways, where you've got very staunch uh, people who won't budge on certain things and you have to do your best to please them. And it happened with the Affordable Care Act, if you remember back in the day. Uh, Obamacare, that's a word I haven't heard in a while. But what I'm saying is that it's something that's been happening so often for whenever the Democrats control Congress that we see this entire having to lose some of the weight of the bill. So the opportunism is there. The want to do something is there. And suddenly you have to deal with the political reality that someone's not going to be happy and you have to get them back on side. And especially important this year, given COVID and given everything that's going on, you have to get them back on side. But it also loses the power of the bill in some ways. And we lost $100 for each person in some ways, which is not a significant amount in the grand scheme of things, but it is a significant amount to those people that would get those $100. And I think that's the bottom line um, in, in what we're hearing. Um, so the New York Times ran a story this morning. I'm going to read you the headline. and You're going to give me your thoughts on it. To juice the economy, Biden bets on the poor. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we all agree with the sentiment in some ways. But maybe not, maybe not calling it Biden bets on the poor. The, the, the story talks about what we're talking about here. It's talking about how the bill's passed and everything. So there's not much there. It's just the headline, which I thought would struck me. One thing you wanted to talk about, I know you wanted to touch on this, was that Republican senators are still against it. What were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this ties kind of into Joe Manchin as well, because I, I did, you know, I said it was a strange political strategy. This is also a strange political strategy because it's an extremely popular bill with the public, uh, including a really healthy portion of Republican voters. They like it. It's a very popular bill. Every time they've ran it in a poll, people are happy with it and they want it because it's, it's really crucial that something like that goes through right now. So I, I haven't, from the start, I haven't understood why the Republican senators are against it other than what I imagine is probably just the attitude of uh, we're going to try and stop Joe Biden passing anything at all so that when it comes up to the midterms, we can use that as some sort of, you know, attack. One argument I suppose Republicans or conservatives would put to you is the amount of the money. Two trillion dollars isn't a small amount. Is that a valid argument or would you suggest that the needs of the many right now outweigh the needs of a conservative minded bunch when it comes to money? Yeah. I mean, you just you just said it. Yeah, I would argue that this money is really crucial. It's needed. I mean, we're in, you know, in the middle of this pandemic. So I think it's not so much, uh, I think it was Biden who said recently, it's, it's not something where this isn't the time to go small. You know, this is the time to spend as much as we need to, to help people out and then deal with it later on. It sounds a little bit irresponsible, but it's, it's, it's a lot more responsible than essentially just withholding really crucial money and, uh, and stopping us from, you know, getting this fixed. So I think it's, I think it's an irresponsible thing to do to vote against it. And I think while some of them maybe, you know, Mitt Romney might be looking at it from that more traditional, this is too much money kind of thing. I think a lot of them are, are more just, they don't want to get, they don't want to let Biden pass anything, essentially. They don't want to be a part of anything Biden puts in. Well, as of Saturday, of course, uh, they have failed and it has gone through the Senate. And Joe Biden did release a press statement where uh, he sort of claimed victory of this thanking Chuck Schumer. And this, uh, this is what he had to say. I'm going to play it for you. I want to thank, start off by thanking the vice president, but I want to thank all of the senators who worked so hard to reach a compromise, do the right thing 
for the American people during this crisis and voted to pass the American Rescue Plan. It obviously wasn't easy. It wasn't always pretty, but it was so desperately needed, urgently needed. I served in the Senate, as you all know, for many years. I've never seen anyone work as skillfully, as ably, as patiently, with determination to deliver such a consequential piece of legislation that was so urgently needed as the American Rescue Plan. Chuck Schumer, Senator Chuck Schumer. For, many, for over a year, the American people were told they were on their own. They were seeing, uh, we've seen how hard that has been on so many Americans. As of last night, 519,064 lives lost to the virus. That many empty chairs this morning, the breakfast table, gone. More than 400 small businesses closed unnecessarily. Millions of people out of work through no fault of their own. I want to emphasize that. Through no fault of their own. Food bank lines stretching for miles. Did any of you ever think you'd see that in America? In cities all across this country? Families facing the threat of eviction. This nation has suffered too much for much too long. And everything in this package is designed to relieve the suffering and to meet the most, most urgent needs of the nation and put us in a better position to prevail. Moving on, we are, we're going to talk about another bill which passed in the House, which is called H.R. 1, also known as For the People Act, which seeks to strengthen American democracy, which at a time is seen as very, very fragile. Naturally, Republicans are opposed to it, and it now has to get through the Senate, which is unlikely as the filibuster on this will remain. This bill sort of includes stuff like automatic voter registration, expansion of early and mail-in voting, and a weakening of state voter ID laws. And this is significant because 43 states have introduced more than 250 bills restricting voter provisions. It's huge. Um, and I haven't seen as much as many people talking about it as I think is necessary. Because it is essentially, you know, this is putting democracy first so that we don't see any more of these restrictive voting provisions. Um, so in, in a lot of states now, like you said, 43, uh, looking particularly at Georgia and Arizona, after Biden you know, flipped them in the 2020 election, that was a really big deal. And they almost immediately moved to pass these restrictive voting um, provisions to, to basically try and dampen turnout among people who are more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. And it all follows Trump's false allegations of mass voter fraud. Uh, there's no evidence for that at all. Um, and it, this bill essentially seeks to, you know, in a broad stroke, prevent these kind of things from happening and make it so that more and more people can turn out and vote more easily, which they, I'm sure, believe will help Democratic goals because uh, there is this kind of belief that the the more people turn out, the higher the turnout, the more likely it is that a Democrat candidate will win. It is disputed. I spoke to a few experts for an article about this uh, a few months ago. There's no solid evidence for it. It's not, it's not proven. It, it's kind of anecdotal stuff, but they obviously believe that will help them. And more importantly, regardless of who it helps, uh, more people should be able to vote more easily. It should be something that's really accessible. Uh, so it's really important that they, they get this out. I think you have more details on it, right? Yeah, so I, I agree with you there, Matt. I think this is very important politically, if not, as you say, 
in the detailed sense. We know that Republicans for a long time liked the idea of gerrymandering along, along district lines. It helps them in Congress, right? And I think this bill, one of the things it does is that it prevents gerrymandering. It means it says if you want to gerrymander congressional lines, get it to an in independent body, which is, I think is a very good move. It's a, it's a move in the right direction. It would also uh, put in place an ethics code for the US Supreme Court, uh, and it would put in measures that would prevent presidential conflicts of interest, ban con congressmen and congresswomen from sitting on corporate boards or using uh, taxpayers' money to fight their own settling, uh, fight their own cases in courts. Uh, and it also takes a look at Citizens United, which, as you, if you may remember, in 2010, as a Supreme Court decision, it basically overruled the amount of money being spent, uh, overruling the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which was passed in 2002. Uh, it overruled this act, um, and which basically opened the doors to the amount of money that could be spent in elections. It meant that corporations and unions were able to spend freely on PACs and super PACs, which created this this vast amount of money that we see today. So this sort of bill takes a look at that as well. So it's a very important bill in the whole long term of things. I, you, you are right. I think we should be hearing more about it. I think in the coming weeks, we certainly will. One really important part of HR1 is that it would bar states from restricting people's ability to vote by mail and call for states to use independent redistricting commissions to create congressional district boundaries. That's really important. Uh, really, really crucial for democracy because actually I heard elsewhere that Republicans could actually uh, go on to win the next election just by redistricting. So, you know, without the, the voter restriction on top of it, just by redistricting, they can find those extra uh, seats and flip. Another important thing actually I want to mention as well, Biden uh, has actually or is expected to sign an executive order today by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be signed to use federal agencies to help people with registering to vote and also encourage people to go to the polls. So it's kind of a, you know, it's small, it's limited. You can't do that much for this with, a, with an EO. Um, but it's as much as he can do while the HR1 hopefully goes towards the Senate. So moving on from there, one of the biggest stories which came out was that on Tuesday was that President Biden says he expects the United States to have enough COVID-19 vaccine doses for every American adult by the end of May. This doesn't actually mean that every person will get their jab by them, but it means that they will have the supply to get everyone there, um, which is a two-month speed up, which is great news. The problem, however, lies in distribution because there's been a slow start since the time of President Trump. Am I right in saying that, Matt? Yeah, he oversaw the development of it, but uh, in the production and the distribution front, he failed to get it out there to people. Biden, as many governments in the past have done, is using the Defense Protection Act of 1950, which was first used to mobilize during the Korean War. So it's actually a very good way of mobilizing your resources. And actually, a lot of companies have been coming together and giving their facilities to other companies so that we can, they can actually manufacture this, which is unprecedented in many ways in the U.S., and, you know, the three vaccines I think that the U.S. is realistically looking at and trying to prioritize are the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, co-produced vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which requires one shot. Uh, it's, it's really a case of how fast now they can get these done. I think it's, it's, it's a good picture for Biden to say, you know, it, again, it's this hopeful image that they'll get through this very soon. And it's, it's a positive outlook that we're seeing. But there are challenges still facing getting out there and getting it to the people that are most vulnerable and perhaps will be the hardest to convince. Am I right, Matt? 
Yeah, there's uh, the real challenge now, now that they've got it and they can produce it, uh, once they figure out you know, how to produce it as quick as possible and distribute it as quick as possible, their real challenge is just getting people to take it, which is like the final hurdle, which you, wouldn't, you would kind of hope that isn't an issue, but in the US they have got quite a challenge ahead of them. Um, so, I mean, to start with, they've got the Trump base, which is, um, given that Trump kind of misinformed the public consistently, during that uh, trend, during 2020, uh, a lot of his base is apprehensive, or they just flat out rejected um, taking the vaccine. They've said they won't take it. Uh, in fact, they're lagging behind. But America as a whole is moving towards a more positive outlook on it, and Republicans are kind of lagging behind as a group because they they just don't. Uh, they're less likely to want to take it. So Biden might have to paint Trump's efforts towards the vaccine in a more positive light, you know, give Trump a little bit of credit so that his supporters feel like, you know, oh, wow, well, Trump did this, so I'll get the vaccine then. It's kind of a, a political game of chess, sort of. Um, and then they've also got a challenge in convincing black Americans to get the vaccine. Um, in that community, there's kind of a, a general mistrust in healthcare systems and providers. Uh, understandably so, it's, you know, it's based in a lot of historical context. So they've got, um, they've got a real problem to solve in, in convincing people that it's safe to do this and they can trust the healthcare systems and providers. Um, but, it, it, you know, the, on a general note, it's getting better. Every time they do a poll, it seems to slightly improve, apart from Republicans, who I said are kind of lagging behind. Uh, are you surprised by that at all? The idea of an anti-vaxxer is a key problem especially when you've still got, and like you haven't just got people that are unconvinced. You've also got a base of people that are a actively spreading misinformation about chips in people's brains and so on and so forth. So it's a worrying prospect of how many people that are actually going to get to take the vaccine. At the end of the day, you can't force people to take the vaccine. So it's very much a question of liberty and choice. Uh, but the Biden government does have a real task on it, on its hands when it comes to convincing people. And as a, as it stands, the numbers look good, but they're going to have to be a lot better by May. And hopefully, as we as we see the light at the end of this pandemic, in terms of people on the uptake, because in the UK, as uh, you know, if we move across the Atlantic for a few, we've had a very good uptake. We've got a very good response to the vaccine, but it's a complete it's the same challenge, but in a completely different environment in the states, which they really do need to address properly. Our second segment of this episode is our Fox News story of the week. So this week, Ted Cruz said the Democratic Party has abandoned the working class on Fox News. We'll play you this clip to listen to. The Democratic Party has abandoned the working class men and women, the millions of people who are out of jobs, who are seeing their wages pulled down, who, who are competing to provide for their families with people coming illegally. That's not who the Democratic Party represents anymore. They don't represent unions anymore. They don't rep represent construction workers or truck drivers or working men and women anymore. The Democratic Party today is the party of wealthy elites on both coasts. So as you heard, uh, Ted Cruz styling himself as a uh, you know, champion of the working class there, struggled to name two regular jobs. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly a great look. Um, and of course, the Republican Party can hardly call itself the party of the working class as its cult leader is a billionaire. Uh, Alaraza, what do you think? I couldn't have said it better myself. I think uh, it's just a very Fox News story. And it's, it's a weird thing for me to say that as a, 
as a journalist, there's got to be more to it. But this is just the kind of stuff we're used to hearing from Fox News now, where they say they come out as this, you know, the, the people that support the working class is the most marginalized people. And you tell them that this party is against you. But hold on, this man doesn't even know what you work as and the struggles you have on a daily basis. <laughs> and let's not forget him flying to Cancun during the, uh, the crisis last week. Yeah, it, it's a funny thing. And it's, it, you know, one week is a long time in politics, but did you forget how you just abandoned people in Texas during one of the worst disasters in memory? Ted Cruz moments, just Ted Cruz moments. <laughs> Welcome to the ad break. Uh, I would like to tell you about another podcast by The Locus. It's called Silhouette, and it examines the gritty details behind a story in US politics. Uh, semi-regular as well. Got to note that because there's no schedule. I don't think there's an episode uh, been put on there for quite a while, except by the time that you all are listening to this, there's a new episode out as part of a kind of mini-series of Silhouette that examines African-American history through the lens of the presidency. And this one looks at slavery and the Civil War, exploring Abraham Lincoln's impact. So it's very interesting. I spoke to a, a great historian, really knowledgeable. Um, she was great. And it's a, it's a really good episode. You should go and listen to it. Alarazi, you got anything you want to add to the ad break? I feel like I don't have anything to say on this. So just, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Check it out on Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Okay, third segment. Welcome back to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the ASMR that is Matt's voice when he's doing ads. Um, <laughs> but this segment is called Burning Questions. And yes, we answer your burning questions. So what the first question we've got, if Biden was a politician in the UK, do you think he would be in the Conservative Party? Uh, I'll let you start on this, Matt. This one made me chuckle. I don't know. It's difficult. I think uh, he's definitely more... There's a, there's a split, I think. So what we in the UK consider as left-wing is so much more left-wing than what the um, American system thinks of as left-wing. So we, I think, are generally um, more left-wing anyway, or at least our left-wing is further to the left. Um, so I don't know if he would fall into conservative party. He might do as kind of a more centrist conservative, kind of a centre-right figure. You know, that's a really difficult, that's a great question. But I mean, what do you think? So I agree with you. It's really hard to place him because I know I was thinking about it and I was thinking, oh, would he be a Blairite? Would he be part of the sort of, you know, the right wing side of the Labour Party? Or I suppose the more centrist side of the Conservative Party, as you said, it's very hard to place him. But the other thing I think it's crucial to mention is that in the States, you have the idea of liberals and conservatives. And it kind of is a different dividing line that we use here and a different metric of dividing people in politically. Um, the idea of a liberal and a conservative often goes back to religion and the views you hold. And I think in certain ways, that's very different to the Conservative Party and the Labour Party that we have in the UK. So to, I guess to go back to the final answer of the question is perhaps, maybe, possibly, uh, you know, you could see him in either. Because right now in the US, he's, you know, his manifesto is quite left wing. So maybe he would be a Blair, right? You know, fiscally responsible, uh, socially, so, uh, you know, not socially conservative, quite socially liberal, that sort of thing. So maybe, yeah, he'd be in the Labour Party right now, but maybe previous Bidens, you would have said he could also be in the Conservative Party. 
yeah. I hope that's answered your question. <laughs> you on that one. So despite, the second question we got was that despite being the only president to be impeached twice, referring to Donald Trump, of course, he still has a loyal base who considers him the best president in the United States history. Do you think he will have the same level of support if he runs in 2024? Mm. This is one that comes up a lot. I think if he ran again, he'd basically see the same thing that he saw in 2020, where, yeah, he's got his base. His base is probably going to be pretty solid. To answer the question, yes, I think he'll have the same level of support if he runs in 2024, maybe slightly more because he did increase turnout in 2020. Um, But I think if he runs, he's like a bad omen because I think all he'll do is motivate the other side, uh, all the Democratic voters, to also increase turnout like they did in 2020. So I think we'd have the same outcome. I think, no, I don't think he'd win. But yes, I think he'll have the same level of support. You, do you agree or disagree? I think his level of supports are always going to be consistent. I think there's a key difference, though. The Trump base and the conservative base or the evangelical base are different places on a map. And I think that's a key thing that Mitch McConnell was also saying, because they have a few candidates they want to run, right? They've got a few people they want. And say, say Donald Trump beats them all in pri- at the primaries. He becomes the Republican candidate. They all get behind him again. He starts doing exactly what he did in 2016 and 2020. Yeah, he starts rallying the base. And he has a lot more ground to cover now. He's got four years of Biden to shoot at and talk about what he's done wrong and use those flaws as he did with Obama. But even then, it depends on how bad... Biden's done and how unpopular some of his policies were. It's very much dependent on that to become as an outsider in politics. So it's, it's, it's difficult to say. I think, as you said, I think he'd still have that same support base, but it's say if he ran in a separate party, which I think he said he won't do, but say he did, he would just split the vote. Say he runs as a Republican. Well, it depends on, it's very much then dependent on how he's campaigning, but also how bad Biden's done, as I said. So it's, it's difficult to say whether he'd win, but if he runs, his core base would still be there. And I think that's the question that you're trying to put at us. So, uh, yeah. But keep sending your questions in. I know that's all we've got time for today. So thanks for tuning in to the listeners. Thank you for being here with me, Matt, as always. And take care. Take care.